We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It is February 14th, 2015, and we are here in the studio. Bit of a, a smaller lineup today. We've got uh, William Barbe. Howdy. Joining us for the first time on this show, David Burt. How's it, everyone? And I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley. We're going to be talking about a few things today. One, some kind of local news in the States that's happened, um, the shooting in Chapel Hill. World events, of course. We've had the Minsk talks a couple of days ago, possible ceasefire in Ukraine. We'll be talking about that. And then we'll be talking about a book that I read recently um, on some kind of early Judaism and Christianity. So we'll be getting into that. But to start out, uh, William, do you want to know what's been going on here in the States in the past few days? All right. We had a pretty tragic event occur on uh, February 10th of this week. Um, a shooter uh, called Craig Stephen Hicks. He's at age was 46, and that'll be important later on. Um, in Durham County, North Carolina, in one of the apartment complexes, he uh, decided to shoot three Muslim people that were also living in the same complex. Um, it was just such a terrible tragedy, these victims. Um, they were all students from North Carolina University, Day Shady Barakad, who was only 23 years old, and newly married just six weeks ago to his wife, Yusur Muhammad. She was, she was 21. And her sister, Razan Muhammad Abu Salah, since she was 19. Barakad was a 19, was a second-year student at dentistry school, and they were pretty well-known around the school. Barakat liked to, uh, was having a fundraiser to help uh, Syrian refugees with basic dental care, and he also provided that same thing in his local community, as well as helping homeless uh, to feed them. There'd be long lines of uh, people just waiting, so they were a pretty good model American citizens, um, even though Barakat was Syrian and and his wife and sister are Jordanian, but they uh, proudly, you know, were Muslims as well. They they wore the typical garb. A lot about that, but um, anyway, this this guy Hicks, um, he was a paralegal student and was about to graduate. Apparently, this spring, um, he displayed quite a bit of anger through the uh, past months. Um, mostly it seemed to be around a parking situation at the complex. Um, and it wasn't directly towards any one person, apparently. He uh, he would even uh, call tow trucks incessantly to come tow people out of parking places, because apparently there's one parking spot per, per, comp, 
per unit mm-hmm. uh, that's reserved there. And uh, he was he was always harassing people and even brandished his gun when one of the tow truck drivers arrived. Um, and uh, he also had complaints with with these three uh, uh, people that he murdered. Uh, he complained about their parking situation. He also didn't like some of the noise that they made. He even went to their door with his gun in his belt uh, to complain about that. So these neighbors, of course, were pretty scared of this guy. And just last week, uh, his wife, the wife, uh, complained to her father about about how she was really scared of this neighbor. Uh, he was just really threatening. Didn't like the way they dressed, and uh, so it, was, it wasn't a very, uh, very good situation. Well, I, I heard like the the reports that I've read. I mean, reading the mainstream news, the it looks like the police put out the the information that it was the motivation was probably um, this parking dispute, and that it wasn't like a hate crime. What what do we know any of the details about that? Like, if there was an actual dispute between Hicks and the and the the three victims or any of them? Like, yeah, there was over the, there was a parking dispute. Um, but he had gone to them and complained about the way they looked, according to the uh, family and friends. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it's more than just a, a parking dispute when you shoot three people point blank, blank in the head. So, you know, the police are trying to spin it that it might not be a hate crime, and the media basically did the same thing. Of course, a little background on this Hicks character. He's a he's an atheist. Uh, of course, he's anti-religious. He freely posts that on his uh, Facebook page, as well as his collection of guns, which the police found there was about a dozen of them there with a lot of ammo, which seems to be a little overkill. Um even his wife uh, came out um, kind of defending him. Um, he, she claims that the shooting had nothing to do with religion, even though her husband is an atheist, and that he believed everyone is equal. But he liked to watch this film called Falling Down, which is a 1993 film about a divorced, unemployed engineer played by Michael Douglas, who who goes on a shooting rampage. He, uh, he thought it was hilarious. And he had no compassion at all. Just um, yes. yes, what his wife said. Yes. Religion started this. If you had his mouth shut, so would I. Given the harm that your religion has done in this world, I'd say that I not only have the right, but a duty to insult it, as does every rational thinking person on this planet. So. It seems like uh, that that was the underlying issues, and the, uh, to me, the parking was just a catalyst. Um, yeah, I mean, if he was having disputes with people, multiple people at the complex, and the three that he chooses to shoot happen to be three Muslims that he obviously has some negative feelings towards, as evidenced by his, you know, his Twitter and Facebook posts and stuff like that. Right. I mean. Yeah, why didn't he shoot three Christians in that? Yeah, exactly. What I found interesting too was the the media coverage on this event. What media coverage? There wasn't any on the day, except uh, for some uh, news outlets like RT. What really got everyone's attention was the big Twitter storm: uh, Muslim Live Matters. And so after that got picked up the next day. 
finally CBS, Reuters, CNN, and all these started covering the story. It's interesting that it took a big Twitter storm in order to get their attention. But, of course, the mainstream news is trying to downplay the murder as just a parking dispute. <clears throat> in fact, CBS even aired a uh, during their Inside Edition on how to safely find a parking space. Oh, jeez. That's just... <laughs> really? Uh, it's interesting also that the White House was really silent, at least in the beginning, about this. Mm-hmm. You know, if it would have been a, a Muslim who shot you know, uh, Christians, uh, they would immediately have a response. Yeah. Has Obama made a statement at all yet? Uh, no, he hadn't a couple, de- at least yesterday. I think he yeah. has come out. With okay. Now. Yes, he has. Yeah. Um, this is part of the uh, uh, the world uh, paying attention all of a sudden. We had the Turkish President Erdogan. He criticized Obama, Biden, and Kerry <clears throat> um, for not saying anything about this. So this was on Thursday. And that's when the FBI decided to open an inquiry into this mm-hmm. to see if there's uh, any kind of a more motivation than just the parking issue. After that, the Friday, that's when uh, Obama finally came out with his little speech saying that no one in the U.S. should ever be targeted because of who they are, what they are, what they look like, or how they worship. Uh, U.N. Mm-hmm. Secretary Ban Ki-moon on Friday, also praised the three victims and said that you know he was real proud of their humanitarian work. So, um, and even the uh, two sisters, which had Jordanian citizenship, the investigation is being closely monitored now by Jordan. And uh, King Abdullah, of course, sent his sympathies. Now, there was over 5,000 people who attended the funeral in North Carolina. It's just about... Uh, all that you hear, you, you know, nothing on the mainstream news really. They're really trying to downplay this now. If it was the other way around, there would probably be big headlines if it was some Muslim person who shot some three white people like that. But uh, well, that that statement that Obama said. I mean, of course, after something like this, especially after uh, you know a Twitter storm like that, where people are calling for something to be said. Of course, you know, leaders are going to say stuff and they're usually going to say the right things. And or at least hopefully they will. But that in itself doesn't really mean much. Because whenever I hear words like that, they they always strike me as somewhat hollow. And it just reminds me, I mean, last week we were talking about the book Defying Hitler. And um I've still been reading it and just finding it's it's a great book. You, there are just so many gems in there of of what went on and then just how relevant it is today. And that quote from Obama just reminded me of like right when the Nazis got power in, in 1933, um, there were, you know, shootings in the streets. There were political assassinations, like targeted assassinations of, um, and people disappearing. So uh, unpopular doctors that expressed certain political views and lawyers and uh, politicians. And yet the official, um, like media reports, the government statements had said that you know Germany is just the safest place; no one's going to get hurt. And meanwhile, in the background, they, you know everyone knows that they're taking people out, and it's happening every day. So we talked about it a couple of weeks ago when we were discussing Islamophobia. But that, I mean, these leaders can say all they want and say all these words, but they're not actually doing anything exactly. to to solve the problem. And it is a problem. Like uh, I've read some statistics 
um, about eight crimes in the United States, and before 2000, before 2001, so before 9/11, there were about uh, 20 to 30 hate crimes against Muslims per year in the states. On, in 2001, that number shot up to about 500, and then every year since then, it has been at about 100 to 150. So, you know, compared to 20 to 30 in the decade decades before. So, I mean, there. I mean, just look at that. It's how do you change the perception of people, and just having a, an event like that can really be devastating. Well, and it should, if if the people if the people ruling countries were smart, if they had any sense of empathy or conscience, you'd think that they'd understand a few, you know, very simple, basic human understandings about the way people work. So when you have an attack like 9/11, let's say, let's just for the sake of argument that it happened exactly the way that the government says it happens, that these 19 Muslim terrorists uh, committed this attack, murdering like 3,000 American citizens. So that's what happened. Let's just say that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got any kind of common sense, you'd realize, okay, we, our country, our citizens have just been attacked by people of a certain religion. Now, What's our response going to be, and what is what is the response of our people going to be? How are they going to be influenced by the way we approach this situation? So are you going to take the responsible route where you react and respond in a way that protects all of the innocent people that are of the same religion, or are you going to do it in such a way that the people, that everyone in that religion gets associated with these murderers? I mean... Well, well, we can see which direction they took, right? <laughs> yeah, they're obviously fanning the flames here, you know. And so it's just, from that point of view, it's just totally irresponsible and inhuman. Now, of course, we can get into all kinds of other stuff about 9-11, but we'll leave that aside for, for now. Just let you use your imagination. Well, on that note, it's interesting if you read some of the uh, mainstream media websites and the comments you're getting from people... Uh, and it's just outrageous, you know, the mm -hmm. the ignorance knows no bounds. I mean, the threats against Muslims, you know, they all should be rounded up and shipped out of the country. I mean, it, it's just mind-blowing. Well, I've got a uh, something I want to read here that was published on Mondo Weiss, um, written by Sama Assad, a young Muslim woman. So here's what she had to say. In less than 24 hours since the shooting... We had read countless statements of encouragement and support expressed by, by non-Muslims over social media, easing the pain if just a bit, and allowing us to feel that we are not always ostracized. I feel safe speaking for many in that we do feel marginalized and alone in times like this, where we easily could have been in the place of the three victims who were killed. While this letter is not meant to derail from how meaningful and appreciated this solidarity is, we naturally have qualms with the alarming, twisted tweets and comments and articles raining down on us, as well as the fear they are attempting to instill in us, or anyone who supports our right to follow our faith. Some users said in chilling tweets that the three victims of the shooting deserved to die due to their Islamic faith. Another person commented that they were glad the tragedy occurred because it gives Muslims a taste of how Americans felt after the tragic 9-11 event attacks. They do realize we're also Americans and felt that pain too, right? Despite the fact that the Muslims who died in the Chapel Hill attack 
were known for their volunteer work, both at the University of North Carolina and in other countries, they are still deemed, quote, terrorists and, quote, ragheads by some. I even saw a Twitter user refer to Hicks as a hero for committing the hate crime, and others personally told me to go back where I came from due to my opinions and religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Wow. <clears throat> oh, well, it's interesting, <clears throat> this Craig Hicks character, who is a so-called champion of freedom and Second Amendment, Amendment rights, he, you know, uh, he hates Muslims. <laughs> Shoots them in the head. I believe we have a, uh, a yeah. video clip here. Yeah, I've got an audio. This is a an, uh, short interview done uh, shortly after the attacks, um, given by Suzanne, who was the sister of um, what was his name? The the man. Oh, the American. Yeah. yeah. So this is Suzanne speaking with Anderson Cooper, I believe. Years old was known for his many acts of kindness. His sister Suzanne, who's a local physician, joins us tonight. Suzanne, uh, thank you for being with us. I, I, I'm so incredibly sorry for your loss. First of all, how are you? How, how's your family holding up? Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here, Anderson. Thank you for having me. In terms of how we're holding up, I would say that the honest answer is we're still in shock. Um, and there's still a lot of denial, and I think the reason why I'm able to be here today is because I feel mostly numb. Mm. Um, but it's been a really incomprehensible tragedy that we're trying to process. Tell, tell me about your brother. What, what was he like? My brother, Dia, was a six-foot-three-inch young man who had the kindest heart, who loved everyone he met, greeted strangers with hugs, um, and dedicated his life to service. He loved his family. He loved his wife, Yusuf. He loved his in-laws. And it's a very sad day for both of our families. There were reports that, that the suspect and your brother, that they had had interactions prior to this. Is that, to mm-hmm. your knowledge, true? Were you aware of that? To my knowledge, yes, there had been issues of some uh, disrespect and harassment from the neighbor's standpoint. Um, It's basically incomprehensible to me that you can murder three people by shooting a bullet into their head and killing them over a parking spot. Let's leave it at that. You think there's more to it? Absolutely. I I, I don't want to ask anything you don't want to talk about, so feel free to just, you know, say, I don't want to talk about it. But you said you know there had been some interactions. Do you think that they had anything to do with with your brother's religion, with how he was perceived by this person? Having heard um, secondhand from what a very close friend of Yusuf's had said, that basically he had said, because of the way you look and not comfortable with, A, the way you look and... I'm really sorry. It's okay. This is really hard. I know. I go from being in denial to being really numb to being really angry. I came here today in hopes of shining light on Zuyat's legacy and Yusuf's and Razan's and for the three of them that has been dedication to service and 
I want to make sure that they're recognized for that and that the world realizes what we have lost and the loss of these three incredibly brilliant, bright, beautiful, accomplished, successful, respectful, loved three young people. Um, if you were within our community, Anderson, you would see just the outpouring of love and support we are receiving from everyone around us, and it's been immensely touching. And I want the world to see that, and I want them to see the true essence of what Liyat Yusuf and Razan was, and it was optimism, it was hope, it was love, it was wanting to help anyone and everyone in their local communities and communities abroad just based on their actions with work that they have done with homeless communities here, with work that they are doing in Turkey to aid Syrian refugees. Dia was running a campaign with the dental school and with some NGOs to fundraise money for a mission trip later this summer. And yesterday he was at at least 16,000 and today it's over 120,000. And that is amazing. And we want to continue that. And we want them to be remembered for that because one thing that I knew about Dia is that no matter, you know, he made dental school look easy. He made <laughs> that's not, everything that's a hard he thing did. To do. Just, it is, but he did it because he loved it. He loved what he did. He loved playing with the children when he was working abroad. He he was happy in everything that he did, and he made it light. And people loved being around him for that. And selfishly, as the older sister who felt like a second mom to him, I will miss him adoring me and the way he loved me and the way he looked up to me and the many phone calls where we would talk and we would give each other advice. And he's like, okay, I see your point. And he was the best friend kind of brother. It's, and it's a tremendous loss, it's not, not just real. It's what I feel. Yeah, it's a tremendous loss, not just for your family and and for your friends, but it sounds like for the community and for this country. It sounds like your brother was a young man who had already made tremendous contributions and would no doubt continue to do that for the rest of his life. They were all destined with very bright futures ahead of them. Dia, being a second-year dental student at UNC, Yusur having just gotten accepted. To to UNC Dental School to be starting in the fall. Razan in a very competitive program studying architecture and is very creative. They all had so much to offer and I just want to make sure that we continue that legacy for them in their name, in their honor, and that all of us as Americans collectively not let their deaths go in vain. Well, Suzanne, um, thank you for, for talking to us. Your strength is, is really incredible. Um, I, I lost a brother many years ago under very different circumstances, but I certainly wouldn't have had the strength to speak about him so soon as you have tonight. And I, I very much appreciate you letting us know your brother uh, just a little bit and, um, and continuing to carry on his legacy. Thank you so much. The three of them have given me the strength to be here today to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, Anderson. And that's just heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. These three young people were... Like, what more could you ask from a person? 
Yeah, they were just kind, compassionate, goodwill. I mean, model citizens. Mm -hmm. And yet they're sh they were shot in the head. What's interesting is this guy, Craig Hicks, he turned himself in a couple of hours mm -hmm. after this brutal crime. And he was uh, it was noted that he turned himself very calmly. It's almost like he didn't have any compassion or emotion at all involved with this incident. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. Now there was a. Now it's interesting that his age, as we brought up earlier, was 46 years old. Now this uh, this point can't be stressed enough. The typical profile of violent extremism in America are, can you guess, mm -hmm. white. Males, they far outnumber jihadists. And what's interesting is the the majority of them range between the ages of thirty to forty nine years old, and a surprising bunch are even older than that. They are typically right wing extremists. They are the biggest domestic violence threat in the United States. The Southern Poverty Law Center has done research on that, and there's a couple of other. Uh, research papers out there also showing that this is the uh, terrible statistics that we have here. That's despite what mainstream media news is trying to portray. But the homegrown violence is is here and is very devastating. We mm -hmm. need to pay attention to that. It's not this jihadist from some other country. It's right here in our own back duck backyard. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, according to the FBI, 52% of all hate crimes are white males. Mm -hmm. Yep. So there you go. You know, watch out. Next time you see a white male walking down the street, you better, you know, run and hide. 30 to 49 years old, you know, watch out. <laughs> well, at the same time, I mean, this happens in a certain context. Of course, we had the the Paris shootings earlier this year and the response to that, well, apparently the EU debating some new anti-terror laws after that. So this is um, a range of ambitious steps to, pr to better protect the EU's 28 nations. Now, EU President Donald Tusk, um, he was the, the host of a, of a recent summit meeting and he said that this new agreement that they're working on was a work plan to step up the fight against terrorism. Now, the EU, the top official for counterterrorism, warned the member governments last month that Europe is facing an unprecedented, diverse, and serious threat. Now, of course, this has resonance with the United States because it's pretty much the same line the United States takes against terrorism. It's pretty much, they see it as the biggest problem in the world, biggest threat. Now, so of course the French attacks were seen as the kind of uh, a game changer for EU counterterrorism policy, and that's what Alexandra de Hoop-Sheffer had to say. Now she is a, uh, she is the senior transatlantic fellow and director of the Paris office of the German Marshall Fund think tank. Now uh, she said a few interesting things. We'll get to that in a second. So these laws, what are they what are they proposing? Well, first of all an EU-wide passenger registry to share information on travelers. So the Hoop Sheffer said that it sounds crazy, but we don't have that system within the EU, even though they have it in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Well, that's crazy, yeah. 
And it, okay, so it turns out. So, well, why don't why have why doesn't the U have a program like this? Well, um, it was uh, there was an earlier attempt to launch a similar program, but it was rejected in 2013 when a committee uh, found they rejected it on civil liberty civil liberties grounds. So yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy, isn't that the isn't it that the EU wouldn't have this this uh you know the latest greatest um passenger registry that just happens to be in gross violation of human rights, civil liberties? I mean, yeah, that's that sounds crazy to me. I mean, the EU should get on board with this. I mean, anything that violates civil liberties, I mean, EU should just snap that up. It's like they were helping to do that. Yeah. Well, and then uh Oh, I was just say what you were saying earlier about if you had a leader, you know, in a democracy that protected rights, they would see that because of extremists, quote, you know, they 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 wouldn't throw everyone into the same bunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the other the other provision is uh, tighter border checks on travelers. So a new screening system to detect suspicious travel movements between EU countries, because right now it's pretty lax. Um, but they want to tighten that up a bit. Um, new rules governing the Schengen area, so that's a lot of most of the EU countries are part of that area. And also the third is fighting the use of the internet to spread radical ideas. Okay, yeah, so yeah, pretty reasonable stuff, right? Well, there actually have been a few voices of reason that have spoken out against this. Whether that will have any effect or not is probably close to nil, but. Um, one of the guys, so the Europe, Europe's Green Party, the Greens, um, said that the at least the passenger registry would be giving carte blanche for EU governments to scale back personal freedoms. Well, yeah, that's probably what they want, maybe. And uh, a couple others. We had the Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb. He said that it was imperative to strike a careful balance between civil liberties and, and security. And European Parliament President Martin Schulz, who recently made some interesting statements on Ukraine, um, quite sane statements, um, he addressed the summit, and he told a news conference afterwards that rashly limiting individual rights in the name of boosting public safety would play right into the terrorists' hands by discrediting Western-style democracy. To be a state of law and democracy, we need to protect our values, Schulz said. Now, you know, that that sounds pretty right to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least there's one guy with a brain. Yeah, and this uh, this agenda is just it's just outrageous. Because when you look at the Chapel Hill murder, you know, here we have Muslims that are just brutally murdered. And is there anything going to be done? Is there any uproar? Is there any legislation? Uh, no, it doesn't serve the the current agenda of demonizing Muslims. Mm-hmm. But as soon as a Muslim does something, oh boy, they jump all over that and want to restrict our rights and movements and Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's, it's the same as the lead up to the Nazi takeover of Germany. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about in defying Hitler. Well, I've actually got a few little bits I want to read from that. I just read the section in defying Hitler where he, he talks about, well, for those who don't know, we talked about it last week, but uh, defying Hitler is a memoir written by Sebastian Hafner, who was a German journalist and writer and historian. And so he wrote this memoir about basically growing up in the pre-World War II, pre-Nazi era Germany, and then as a young man encountering the Nazis and how he lived that life and what he what he saw and felt and experienced. 
And so he gives his perspective on the, the major events that happened and the minor events, just how it affected everyday life. So when the Reichstag fire was burned, he had this to say. So poor Marinus van der Lubbe was found in the building, equipped with every conceivable piece of identification. Uh-huh. Outside, against a flaming backdrop, like a Wagnerian Wotan, Hitler uttered the memorable words, If this is the work of the communists, which I do not doubt, may God have mercy on them. We had no inkling of all that. The radio was switched off. Um, so he's just, you know, he was, he was just out with friends. He didn't really know what was going on. Then he found out. So at the same time of the fire, a, a decree of Hindenburg's was promulgated. It abolished freedom of speech and confidentiality of the mail and telephone for all private individuals, while giving the police unrestricted rights of search and access, confiscation and arrest. That afternoon, men with ladders went around, honest workmen, covering campaign posters with plain white paper. All parties of the left had been prohibited from any further election publicity. Those newspapers still appeared... Those, new, those newspapers that still appeared reported all this in a fawning, fervently patriotic, jubilant tone. We had been saved. What good luck. Germany was free. Next Saturday, all Germans would come together in a festival of national exaltation, their hearts swelling with gratitude. Get the torches and flags out. Skip a bit. Funny also that the Nazis got so worked up about the Reichstag. Up till then, they had contemptuously called it a hot air factory. Now it was suddenly the Holy of Holies that had been burned down. Well, that suits their book, don't you agree? My friend, that's politics, isn't it? Fascinating. Now, more seriously, perhaps the most interesting thing about the Reichstag fire is that the claim that it was the work of the communists was so widely believed. Even the skeptics did not regard it as entirely incredible. Hafner's perspective being, well, was it really the communists? Well, no, it wasn't. I mean, (laughs) Mm -hmm. all possible forms of identification found on this guy where have we heard that before? Yeah, where have we heard that before? Okay. Skipping a bit more. After all that, I do not see that one can blame the majority of Germans who, in 1933, believed that the Reichstag fire was the work of communists. What can one blame them for? And what shows their terrible collective weakness of character clearly for the first time during, that Nazi, during the Nazi period is that this settled the matter. With sheepish, with sheepish submissiveness, the German people accepted that as a result of the fire, each one of them lost what little personal freedom and dignity was guaranteed by the Constitution, as though it followed as a necessary consequence. If the communists had burned down the Reichstag, it was perfectly in order for government to take decisive measures. Then he gives a little conversation he had with his fellow uh, law co-workers. He was kind of like a junior judge at this time, in his early 20s, mid-20s. So all of them were very interested in the question of who had committed the crime, and more than one of them hinted that they had doubts about the official version. But none of them saw anything out of the ordinary in the fact that, from now on, one's telephone would be tapped, one's letters opened, and one's desk might be broken into. Quote, I consider it a a personal insult, I said, and that I should be prevented from reading whichever newspaper I wish because allegedly a communist set light to the Reichstag, don't you? One of them cheerless, cheer... One of them cheerfully and harmlessly said, no, why should I? Do you read forwards, the red flag up to now? So basically, you know, I got nothing to hide. I don't care if the government, right. you know, bans what I'm going to read or reads my email or my, my letters because, I mean, I don't read the, you know, those uh, Al-Qaeda magazines or terror websites, right? 
So I'm perfectly willing to just give up all my personal freedoms if they're going to, you know, they can go after all those communists or, you know, terror sympathizers, but... What a playbook. Yeah. Well, you you hear that. It's it it's a playbook, you know. They've used Nazi Germany, and, and that's exactly what you're seeing now today, you know. NSA spying, and they read everything, give up our rights, or, you know, protect us. But hey, if you got nothing to hide, then... You know, what's your problem with it? Right. For now. <laughs> well, that's that's why it's so frustrating reading an historic, an historical account like this, where you see the exact same responses, the exact same types of measures that come in after this terrorist attack, and the people giving the same, you know, tired responses. Oh, well, you know, doesn't bother me. What, what do I have to hide? But then look what happened afterwards. I mean, we've got the benefit of hindsight that we can see what happens after this, that these people... That were so fine with it happened to be the ones, you know, that, that ended up suffering under it. It's not like they, and if they didn't, they had to join the Nazi party, you know, Zieg Heil, show their support for something that it came to the point that, you know, it was not worth supporting. And it became obvious to probably any German with a conscience. And the majority of Germans weren't for this Nazi yeah. takeover at all. They had to um, acquiesce mm-hmm. and go along with it. And look what happened. Oh, well, that's what you're seeing with the Islamic phobia is, you know, just what the Nazis did with the Jews. They mm-hmm. sow these seeds and then the time's right. Yeah. yeah it's I your, mean, it's your typical false flag and it's been played over and over and over again. And Hafner even talks about when he was a kid, before Hitler was anybody, and the political kind of chaos that was going on in Germany at the time, and politics was kind of like a hobby for kids at that time. They wanted to, to see what was going on, and they had their heroes and and uh, villains. But it got to the point where everyone was just so inept and couldn't do anything that they they just stopped being into politics, would get into something like sports that they could you know put their energy into. But he made a he made the the observation that the people that stayed in politics were the brute, stupid mm-hmm. um, jerks. Those were the guys that stayed that that uh, continued with their you know political fervor. And so, yeah, most of the people seem to be yeah. more interested in and, yeah. you know who had the higher percentage and this and that and the other. They were just following numbers more than the what the actual people represented. Mm-hmm. Well. On the subject of Islamophobia and, and terrorism being the biggest threat, uh, I just want to read two interesting quotes. You can take them for what they're worth by uh, two world leaders or ex-world leader. Um, first is from Kadyrov from Chechnya. So a couple of weeks ago, he said, Today, no one doubts the fact that this group, ISIS, has been spawned by America and other Western countries in order to spark hatred of Islam in the hearts of people all over the planet to stop the process of mass conversion to Islam. He also, Kadyrov, suggested that the West was backing IS, the Islamic State, in order to distract public attention from numerous problems in the Middle East in the hope of destroying Islamic nations from inside. Prior to this, Kadyrov had told reporters that he possessed information that the IS leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, had been recruited to work for the U.S. personally by General David Petraeus, the former director of the CIA and former commander of coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
At that time, Kadyrov claimed the Islamic State was acting on orders from the West and Europe. It'd be interesting to see what his sources for that were. But. Right. And then last September, so several months ago, Fidel Castro said this. Many people are astonished when they hear the statements made by some European spokesmen for NATO when they speak with the style and face of the Nazi SS. Adolf Hitler's greed-based empire went down in history with no more glory than the encouragement provided to NATO's aggressive and bourgeois governments, which makes them the laughingstock of Europe and the world. Castro accused McCain, John McCain, of supporting Israel's Mossad intelligence agency as well as participating together with that surface that service in the creation of the Islamic State, which today controls a considerable and vital portion of Iraq and reportedly one-third of Syria as well. Yeah, I wonder where Castro and Kadyrov are getting their information because it oh, sounds crazy. <laughs> Conspiracy theorists. They may notice a little bit of history. I saw an interesting documentary of uh, when the Moors invaded Europe. Now, the Moors were the, the Muslims. And this was right after the fall of Rome. And it was just a <clears throat> amazing what changes they brought about in Europe. And they most had a very significant um, hand in helping Europe to get out of the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that no one wants to hear. And it's uh, it's even being suppressed, uh, which was mostly in Spain. And even there, it's, it's difficult to even bring up that kind of history. They don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, they go and have these mosques everywhere, and they don't only use these mosques for religious purposes. They bring in their their kids and everybody for schooling. They learn how to read. They have the highest literacy rate of of any other religion or nation. And it, I mean, if people just took a brief look at the history, you would definitely have a whole different opinion on, on what Muslims are. Yeah, but unfortunately, people don't want to change their opinions. No, nope. because they're right, right in their own mind. I mean, everything I believe has got to be right. Otherwise, I wouldn't believe it. There you go. Well, moving on. Minsk. So, we talked about Ukraine last week and the situation there. The so-called Debaltsova cauldron that had formed. So basically, thousands, you know, up to 8,000 Ukrainian troops are encircled, surrounded by Donetsk and Lugansk militias, basically trapped there. There's no way out, no way of Ukrainian forces getting them out. So this was a kind of a big thing and was probably the main motivation for these latest this latest round of Minsk talks between uh, with France, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, um, OSCE members of all those countries or organizations there to talk about to talk it over and see what's going on. So because what would, what had basically happened was. The Ukrainian armed forces had launched this kind of renewed offensive, and it was pretty much a total failure. They got themselves encircled. You know, the probably the greater part of their fighting forces are trapped. And so, you know, the European leaders looking at this, Poroshenko's looking at this and saying, ooh, you know, what are we going to do? Well, you know, well, Poroshenko's a different story. We'll get to that. So they plan these Minsk talks. They go on for like 17 hours. I mean, these guys didn't get any sleep that night and end up um, coming out with this document, which is similar to, you know, previous Minsk documents. Curiously enough, not signed by any of the major 
people involved, like any of the world leaders, they're signed by uh, Kuchma, the ex-Ukrainian president or prime minister that doesn't, well, one of the two, that doesn't really have any kind of authority in Ukraine, and by the representatives for the heads of the, the People's Republics, Donetsk and Lugansk. But anyways, it was kind of, it's been touted as this, you know, great move for diplomacy and you know, a step towards peace. Notice how the U.S. wasn't involved in any of this. Yeah, thank goodness. Well, because the U.S. wants to just, you know, arm Ukraine to the teeth and let them have at it. Have at it. But if you look at some of the details from this Minsk uh, protocol, there are 13 points. The first calls for an immediate and comprehensive ceasefire that will begin uh, tonight at midnight. So actually pretty soon is when it is supposed to start. Now, the, the ceasefire is kind of an important thing. It's probably what both sides wanted because the fighting is intense going on. Now, it looks like Ukraine is the, is the side that really needs this ceasefire at the moment because they're the ones trapped. But Poroshenko at the, the meetings was apparently unaware of this the Baltsova cauldron. So... It looks like he doesn't. He wasn't even aware that all these troops were surrounded. He, it, it's it, it's possible that his you know his military commanders were giving him information that just wasn't true, trying to portray the situation in a positive light when it actually wasn't. So it, some commentators are, are speculating that Poroshenko was kind of caught off guard by this when everyone at Minsk was telling him what a bad situation he was actually in. Wow. Now, as soon as soon after like the day after the the talks, the Kiev lost um launched kind of a a, a renewed offensive on the Debaltsova region. And so they sent in like 300 well-armed, well-trained reserve troops to the town of uh, Logvinovo and to to make the, and these troops were actually well trained. So, like the the militias will often say that they encounter fresh recruits that just don't know what they're doing. They get captured or killed just because they've just been sent in. They've you know they were trained a few months ago. This is their first engagement. Well, apparently, Ukraine sent in their kind of their top troops. These guys were the ones that, that had been saved for the decisive offensive. Sent in a bunch of tanks. Well, this whole little crew got caught in crossfire and, you know, mission unsuccessful so far. So a, another little failure there. Now, also, all these guys are trapped. They want to do a ceasefire. Well, several, if not most, perhaps, of the officers in charge of these, of the, the troops, the, the guys that are stuck there, fled. So these, a lot of these Ukrainian troops are just are are stuck there without their commanding officers, and so how how is Poroshenko supposed to um, issue orders to these guys? They're kind of trapped there. How are they even going to know about this ceasefire? Because there, when when the the cauldron was formed, the Kiev and Donetsk and Lugansk had set up this idea for a humanitarian corridor to get the civilians out. Well, it turns out that Kiev hadn't informed the residents of this plan. So the buses came and like 30 people got on them because they didn't know about it. The people that, that got on the buses 
just happened to find out by chance. They were just in the area at the right time, and they managed to go back and get their families to, to get on the buses and get out. Hadn't even told the residents that, that this was happening. So, I mean, just treacherous behavior. More on the ceasefire. So, everyone wants a ceasefire, right? Europe's clamoring for it. Putin's behind it. The, you know, Donetsk and Lugansk agree to it. Well, who's the who are the ones that are saying no ceasefire? Well, the right sector in Ukraine. So these are kind of the neo-Nazi guys that uh, that have their their own battalions that work with the Ukrainian army in these attacks on the on the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. So their leader Dmitry Yarosh um, said he wants to create a separate Ukrainian volunteer volunteer army. And they are refusing to obey the ceasefire. They're saying we're, you know, we're going to keep on with this war. So Poroshenko's put in kind of a catch-22 because he's got all these guys trapped in the cauldron to get them out. He's got a couple options. Well, if they want, if they try to break out now, they'd be violating the ceasefire. But if they stay and don't do anything, that means they have to capitulate surrender, leave their weapons, and head out. So either way you look at it, it's... Rocking a hard place. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that Poroshenko probably doesn't even have very much power. He's not the one that's in charge of any of this. I mean, uh, he's got these right sector guys and all these other oligarchs and, and leaders that want him to go in a certain direction. And if he doesn't, I mean, they're all too willing to say, okay, well, you're not doing a good job. We'll put someone else in power. Yeah, even the, the Ukrainian representative who signed the mixed agreement apparently doesn't have a whole lot of power or yeah. say and or any recognition. Mm-hmm. So point two: withdrawal of all heavy rep, of all heavy weapons from the line of contact. So for the for Kiev, this means withdrawing from the current line of contact. So where they're fighting right now, they've got to back up like. 50 to 100 or 150 kilometers, depending on the range of the heavy weapons that they're using. For the Novorossian Armed Forces, that means backing up to the line agreed um, in September. In the last months, they've made some advances and taken back some, some territory. So this would create kind of a demilitarized zone between uh, on the front. Now, this, too, only serves the Novorossians, because if we look at what the heavy artillery is used for primarily... Kiev uses it to bomb civilian areas and cities. Mm -hmm. The attacks are mostly, um, you know, hand weapons, mortars, stuff. It's not heavy artillery. The the, the Novorossians don't use heavy artillery or don't need it if the Ukrainians aren't using it because the, the, the Novorossians aren't bombing civilian areas. They're not targeting, they're not launching this offensive attack on on Ukrainian regions. It's purely defensive. So, so again, that one seems to play only into the favor of Novorossiya. Now, third point, the OSCE will be monitoring, monitoring all these developments. They'll be using drones and stuff and satellite images. Number four is to hold local elections organized by the Ukrainians and the Novorossians together. Now, what are the chances of that happening? Not much. <laughs> I mean, already we've had people in the Ukrainian government saying we're not going to work with these, you know, rebels. So, you know, that's not going to happen. 
Uh, fifth point is pardons and amnesties, blanket amnesty for all participants, anyone that may have engaged in war crimes. So, of course, that would include amnesty for war crimes on the Ukrainian side. So that's not necessarily a good thing. But at the same time, okay, if you look at it, Donetsk and Lugansk are willing to go with that, apparently, at least in theory. But already the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Ukraine has said that any steps with respect to so-called amnesty will be implemented according to the law, which was discussed in Parliament. Moreover, this amnesty, and I repeat this, can in no way be given to those who were involved and engaged in crimes against humanity. This is an absolute position, which was clearly emphasized in the framework of yesterday's talks. So, of course, he's referring to the militia leaders there as being engaged in war crimes. So right there, you've already got Ukrainian officials saying there's no way we're giving amnesty. So that point is kind of shot. Sixth point is a prisoner exchange, all prisoner exchange, all for all. So basically, every both sides would release all their prisoners. Mm-hmm. Now that so that would be, I guess you. But you know, Kiev can't really release the prisoners they've killed already. Right. So. <laughs> and seven humanitarian assistance. Well. Donetsk and Lugansk are already getting that from Russia, so that's kind of an empty statement. With, Pay- with the international monitoring yeah. as well. Number eight, payment of pensions. <laughs> How is Ukraine going to continue paying pensions? Uh, you know, they don't have any money. That's yeah, not, not likely. They're broke. <clears throat> Resume banking services. Mm-hmm. And also asking for uh, utility payments and, and, of course, resume taxation, but that's also up to further negotiations. Number nine, the restoration of border control. Now, this is an interesting point. So Kiev, the official government in Kiev, will will retake control of the border, of Ukraine's borders. That would be the, the border with Russia. And But this will only happen in, consultri- in consultation and agreement with the representatives of individual areas of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. And this will only happen after certain constitutional changes are made to the Ukrainian constitution. And t- but So again, is that likely to happen? No, that's not likely to happen. Which means that the, by this document is essentially acknowledging that Ukraine doesn't have control of its eastern border and won't ever. Isn't it NATO countries on the border? Well, the... They are to the west, but the I think the area in question was the eastern border, which is bordered with Russia. After that, um, withdrawal of all foreign forces. Um, yeah, good luck getting NATO out of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of impossible for 9,000 9, Russians to leave when those Russians aren't there. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out if eventually. Um, and then they've got some some ideas about the creation of a people's militia for Donetsk and Lugansk. Well, they've already got one, but uh, elections, oh, elections, number 12, they need elections, but that those will only happen if everything in the above happens first. So, I mean, if you look at all those points, the first two are pretty much the only ones that really have any possibility of happening. And even then, if they do happen, if you look at every previous pre- ceasefire, it's unlikely that Kiev will abide by any of those rules. 
they've broken every ceasefire. They've continued to fire on to shell civilian areas to to kill people. I mean, even up to the very yeah very moment right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's happening right now. I mean, it's just in the past 24 hours, you know, I think there have been something like 60 shellings on Donetsk and Lugansk civilian areas. There have been three to five civilian deaths, 20 wounded. Fighting is still going along along the front. So, I mean, I guess we've only got a few hours to see what happens. Yeah. So, looks like not much is going to change. Uh, The mobilizations will continue, so Ukraine will still continue to try to get more troops. Same with Donetsk and Lugansk. And, yeah. Yeah, and point 11, uh, they're supposed to implement a constitutional reform by the end of the year, which would decentralize the political system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fat chance of that ever happening. I mean, even if Poroshenko had signed this, He's pretty much powerless to coerce everyone in his, in his government to agree with it and go along with it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the – I mean, I think it was something that had to happen because, I, I I mean, I agree with the perspective of Putin and Lavrov that the only way to really humanely deal with a situation like this is through diplomacy and talking and actual attempts at peacemaking. The, the as it's progressing right now, just with the blatant murder and warfare, that's not, I mean, no one wants that. Well, most people don't want that. There are a few, like the right sector guys, that just want war, enjoy it, and they they want to kill the Russians. As simple as that. But what's really going to happen? Well, I think, you know, Poroshenko has kind of been put in a place where he's he's in the position of the one that will at least to sane observers, be responsible when this doesn't uh, doesn't happen. Yeah, we were talking earlier. It looked like it was a great move by Putin and, and Lavrov mm-hmm. to get this thing started and get it set up, so that if there is a failure, it can't be blamed on Russia. Yeah. But at the same time, it will be blamed on Russia because everything's blamed on Russia. <laughs> so it's funny because. Russia is is portrayed as being the one responsible for making sure this stuff happens, which is absurd because Russia is not involved. Russia is not in Ukraine. This is an internal matter between the Ukrainians and the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. So, I mean, there's nothing that they can really do, but at least in the terms of this document, it's clear who's responsible, and the and the vast bulk of the majority of the vast bulk of the responsibility lies with Kiev, and they will be unable to fulfill pretty much any of these points. So I don't know what's going to happen if you know somehow the spin doctors in the West are going to be able to to chalk this up to another Russian <laughs> sabotage operation or what, but. Yeah, it was interesting to see some of the pictures from the Minsk talk. And uh, <clears throat> it was pointed out how Lavrov seemed to be really laid back and he would step out every once in a while to smoke his cigarettes and he seemed to be at ease. And also saw pictures of Putin. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to be pretty jovial with the Belarusian uh, president. And 
they, they seem to feel like they've got their hand yeah. pretty well in the bag. So I'd like to see that hand. <laughs> yeah, and Poroshenko didn't look very pleased the whole time either. He never does. Yeah, he looks a little stressed. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, he kind of deserves it. He had to be pushed up to even shake hands with Putin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you watch the video, he's kind of like standing in the in the background. You can't even see him because he's like directly behind Merkel. And then she kind of steps out of the way and pulls him forward to, to shake Putin's hand. And, uh, a kind of repeat of their previous handshake where Poroshenko was just giving him the, the evilest look possible. I mean, does Poroshenko really... I wonder what he really believes if he kind of believes the, the propaganda that the people in his in his government and his underlings are feeding him, he really believes that the Russians are are in Ukraine are in no oh, yeah. he had yeah. to display those passports, you know, and see, look, evidence, evidence. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, what a fool. I mean he displays these passports. You know, that that's just gotta be one of the most embarrassing moments for him. Oh yeah. Because uh, Oh, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, because military people give up their passports yeah. and citizenship papers, so yeah. you know they don't have that when they go there to fight. And they wouldn't, Kiev wouldn't even provide um, copies of the of the documents to show them to Russia to show who these people were. So we have no proof that these are even real passports. And if they are real passports, okay, well, who would be carrying a passport? Well, a civilian or a person on a vacation or something like that or someone who just holds a russian passport cuz there are people that live in the region that have russian passports he's not, <laughs> he's not the only one who got embarrassed cuz uh, senator ivanhoe got embarrassed oh, yeah. too with some uh, 2008 pictures of of russia invading georgia and they were pawned off to him as evidence that they were in ukraine that was just that was hilarious a bunch of clowns well at the very least you know among all the tragedy and killing at least there's some good comedy that comes out of it as well because otherwise i don't know we move on move on all right yeah i think so so last thing i want to or we want to talk about i'll do most of the talking because i think i'm the only one that's read the book but uh, i read a, a a really interesting book these past few days called the messiah before jesus by a guy named Israel Knoll, or Knoll, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. He is the chair of Bible, chair of the chair of the Bible department at Hebrew University. So here are this little book on the Messiah before Jesus. Well, it's a short book; it's only like a hundred pages, less if you don't read the appendices. So I'd recommend it because it's really interesting if you are interested in the Bible or history or something like that. So sorry if you're not, but we're going to talk about it for a little bit. So the main idea of this book is this idea of the Messiah and how it's portrayed in the Bible primarily and Jesus being seen as the Messiah. So in the actual Gospels, Jesus doesn't present himself as the Messiah. He never he never addresses himself as the Messiah, but he foretells the the rejection, death, and resurrection of the Son of Man. And so even even though he refers to the Son of Man in the third person, the connection is made between him and Jesus because, you know, Jesus is rejected, dies, and is resurrected, apparently, you know, in the Bible, in these gospel accounts. So also the Messiah, or Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah, he brings redemption from sin through his death on the cross. For years now, in Bible studies, 
scholars have looked at this, looking at these accounts and looking at the, at history from the time, and they've kind of come to the conclusion that Jesus, as a as they see him as a historical person, probably never saw himself as the Messiah, and that this was a later addition by uh, by Christians writing the Gospels and just the ideas that developed after. Mm-hmm. And even looking in the internal in, at the texts themselves, you know, you've got Jesus who doesn't call himself the Messiah. So it's kind of it makes sense to to say that okay, well later on, you know, a couple of generations after people Christians started started looking for meaning in this gospel account and they found, you know, all these references in in Isaiah to the suffering servant who wasn't the Messiah. He, the suffering servant in Isaiah is not a Messiah figure in the Old Testament. But they saw the connections and they, so they kind of like retroactively made made these connections to these prophecies as if Jesus fulfilled all these little bits in the Old Testament, even though those bits weren't necessarily connected to each other. They just kind of picked and chose where to catch them and said, oh, well, these all these, all these little prophecies, actually, they're talking about the Messiah. So that's been how people have seen, scholars have seen what was going on back then, that because the the actual Jude. Uh, the actual messianic ideas in Judaism had nothing to do with uh, the so-called suffering servant. What it was is that there would be like this this kingly Messiah that would rule all nations, and it had nothing. It, it didn't really resemble the the Messiah as Jesus was presented as the Messiah. So that, in addition to what what I just said earlier, has kind of led people to say that these ideas were kind of uniquely Christian developed after the fact. But things are kind of changing now because in 1947, um, there was a discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, most listeners have probably heard of those. Some kind of shepherd was out in the desert and lost one of his sheep or something like that. And so he was he was looking through some caves and found some found this cave there. And so he threw a rock into the cave to make sure there were no you know, nasties in there. And he heard something crack. Now, it turns out the rock he'd thrown cracked this kind of um, earthenware pot that contained all these ancient documents from from the region, you know, written in just tons, uh, a whole, like, treasure trove of, doc- of documents. Now, they've been, most of them have been translated and released. It took several years, and some are still, even just in the past 20 years, being translated and released um, fragments because some of the some of the documents were in great shape, some were kind of torn up and and folded together and crumpled. So it's been qu- quite a challenge to um, get them all in in shape to to translate. So some of these fragments were a few hymns. Now these hymns contain ideas about the Messiah that were totally foreign to the Judaisms of the time. We'll get to those, but first, the it's most scholars think that the the Essenes, a group of Judaism, were responsible in the uh, for these documents. It was their kind of library. Not everyone agrees, but most think it was the Essenes. So the Essenes were kind of this pacifistic group. We don't know a lot about them. Pretty much just what Josephus tells us about them and some other clues here and there. But I want to read just a a really short part of one of these hymns. 
This is, I believe, the Thanksgiving hymn. So it says, Who has been despised like me? And who has been rejected of all men like me? And who compares to me in enduring evil? Who is like me among the angels? I am the beloved of the king, a companion of the holy ones. The king being kind of a code name for God. Now, just those words right there are remarkable in the sense that, first of all, they're written in the first person. When texts of the time that refer to like a coming savior or a coming Messiah, they're never written in the first person. It's always written as if in a third person for someone that's to come. So this suggests that this was actually um, composed in the first in the first person, um, maybe not written in the first person, but this was uh, uh, there was a, an historical figure that actually saw himself in this way. Now the words that he used, um, "Who's been despised like me? Who's been rejected of all men like me?" Those are pretty much straight out of Isaiah, the, the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it says, "He who de- he who was despised and rejected of men." a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right after that we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those verses right there are directly directly comparable to the ones in in the hymn. Who compares to me in enduring evil? Who is like me among the angels? So right in just this little fragment, now the hymn itself is, is longer, there's more parts to it. But we have this idea of of a guy who pre- who presents himself as being a divine kingly figure who is equal to God, who has transcended all flesh, who has, through his own suffering, atoned for the sins of his community. Now that is pretty much an exact description of the Messiah as presented in early Christian texts. So he's the suffering servant. He's the kingly Messiah, bears the sins of the community. He also presents, the the hymns also present um, the the community as living in a new world, free from sin. Now they're already living in this world, according to to these hymns, which kind of contrasts to a similar view in Christianity about the kingdom of God coming. So the kingdom of God will come, but it just never never quite gets here. So there's a connection there. Now, so so you can see that some of these ideas made it into the Christian texts and traditions, like the Gospels, but they also came into a couple other documents, like the Book of Revelation and the so-called Oracle of Histapses. Now, this Oracle of Histapses, apparently um, there was a like an edict from Rome that anyone caught reading it would be put to death. So it only survives in the, in quotations from the writings of some early church fathers. But in this Histopsis oracle, there are two kings who kill the true prophet. They leave him dead for three days, after which he is, res- he is resurrected. Now, so, of course, some Christians would see that as a kind of Christian description of, of um, the Messiah of Jesus. But that's not exactly how Histopsis presents it. Revelation, of course, has the two beasts. And... We'll get to that shortly, because what makes this all kind of fit together and make sense is some background information for what was going on at this time in the Roman Empire. So in 44 BC, uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated, 
And in his will, he adopted his nephew, Octavian, as his successor, as his son. So with Caesar gone, Octavian, uh, Mark Antony, and Lepidus, they formed the so-called Second Triumvirate. So they ruled as, as kind of three leaders over the over Rome at the time. They divided it up, and um, there was lots of warfare. Things kind of spiraled downhill. Even after the Civil War, there were state-sanctioned assassinations. People were not happy at what was going on. I mean, Caesar was there. He was trying to do stuff, and then and they people loved him, and then he was assassinated. After this, we've got another civil war. People are dying. It's just not um, not a pleasant situation to live in, living under empire like that. So after Caesar's died, uh, the poet Virgil, who was a friend of, of Octavian, later named Augustus, he wrote something called the Fourth Eclogue, in which only a miraculous redeemer could save Rome. He, des- uh, he describes a golden age free from sin that would come to the Roman Empire, ushered in by a miraculously born child. So right here in like 40 BC, Virgil is writing about a miraculous birth that would give rise to the redeemer of Rome that would usher in a golden age free from sin. And it turns out that Augustus, uh, he presented himself as this savior. So he took on this role for himself as the savior of Rome. So he kind of had as much audacity as the, the Messiah in in the Essene hymns there. Because some, some more background, what had happened is that after Caesar had died, there were funeral games held in his, in his honor, and a comet was seen for something like a week. And so this, was, this comet was seen as a sign of Caesar's ascension into heaven, and he was deified. So the people and, the, and people like Augustus, who promoted this, saw it as the deification of Caesar. Caesar became a god and had risen up into heaven. So if Caesar was a god, then that made Augustus the son of God. And that's what he called himself, the son of God, Divi Filii. He also called himself the son of the Most High. Now, where have we heard those two terms before? Son of God and son of the Most High. Those are straight out of the Gospels. Now, here's a little inscription that was found from uh, 9 BC um, about Augustus. Whereas the providence which divinely ordered our lives created the most perfect God, the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus and filling him with virtue for the benefit of mankind, sending us a savior who would put an end to war. When he appeared, he exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings. Well, how's that for <laughs> for official propaganda? <laughs> I mean, bringing an end to all war. I mean, Augustus was kind of a butcher. But anyways. So, um, let's see here. I'm going to read just one little bit after this that Noel writes. So, the divine character of Augustus the Redeemer is also clearly expressed in the art of the period. In some artifacts, Augustus is shown sitting on a splendid throne in the company of the gods. The Messiah of of the Qumran sect, this is the Essenes where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, described himself as sitting on a throne of power in the congregation of the gods, exactly as Augustus is depicted. The Messianic hymns from Qumran describe the period of redemption in terms remarkably similar to those in Virgil's description of the New Age. Because the Qumranic Messiah was active during the period of Augustus, 
we must consider the possibility that the political and cultural atmosphere in Rome, as expressed in Virgil's poetry and Augustus's propaganda, also influenced the Messiah. So right there, we find all of these ideas about the, the Christian Messiah actually found in, this, in these documents about the Qumranic or the Essene Messiah, which are found in the royal or the in the propaganda from Augustus. So we see this chain from this repeating cycle. Yeah. And it's and it's it looks like a chain of influence. So we have the the official Roman propaganda that portrays Augustus as this miracle child um born to to redeem Rome of its sins, to usher in a golden age. But what kind of happened is that this, these ideas and this imagery, they made their way into the Essene beliefs, but with a twist. So to them, they, they turned Augustus' propaganda around because they saw, they, they saw what, he was, what he was really doing. Then, and so he wasn't the prophet, for example, in, these, in the Revelations and Histopses. He was actually the dragon. Um, well, we'll get to that. And so they appropriated these kind of um, these titles of Augustus for themselves, for their own Messiah, kind of like Augustus isn't the real redeemer. We've got we've got the real deal here. Our Messiah is the is the the real stuff. Where have we heard this before? <laughs> <laughs> so so the Essenes are portrayed as uh, as pacifists, as these kind of you know kind of hippie. <laughs> heavy type characters, but that wasn't really the case. Um, the the they had a word for their for the their Messiah it would be called the Nazi, and in their texts he would be the one to kill the wicked one, the king of Kittim, and the king of Kittim was the emperor of Rome, the ruler of Rome, Augustus Caesar. So these guys were actually planning the assassination of Caesar Augustus which was a pretty audacious thing to do. But at the same time, they were oath-bound not to reveal their secrets. So they had this conspiracy among themselves, but at the same time, when presenting themselves to the world, or even to like a, in, to the, the royal court of Herod, they would present themselves as um, just law-abiding good citizens, while at the same time, they were planning like revolution in order to take over the, <laughs> take over the Roman Empire. So around this time period in 4 BC, Herod died. Herod was the king in uh, Jerusalem at the time. And there was a revolt. Now the Syrian governor was sent in to quell this revolt. And there are accounts that it was just a um, like raping, killing, enslaving. So all these revolutionaries... Uh, freedom fighters, if you will, were just, um, you know, slaughtered by the Syrian governor. And this was probably when the, the death of this Messiah happened. And his death, where he was and left in the street for three days to die, after which his followers uh, claimed that he was raised into heaven and resurrected, this kind of led to the idea of catastrophic messianism. So they... the the followers of this Messiah probably looked him into Isaiah and said, well, you know, it's not just these things that he kind of has something in common with, but it looks like 
uh, it looks like there's some some more here. So the that um, the idea that that the Messiah would return, but that there was this new emphasis on the suffering and killing, and um, and that this death would have redemptive value. So basically, here's this Messiah. He's killed by. I mean, think about it. The the followers wouldn't want their to see their Messiah, their head honcho, killed and left like a criminal in the street for three days. So, just like with Romans, who after the death of Julius Caesar were looking for a redeemer to come, they would look for the same thing: someone to come back and you know carry on the good work. So this was probably the birth of this idea of the Messiah as this guy that would come back to redeem humanity. So coming back to those two documents, the book of Revelation and, and his Histopses, the oracle, in Histopses there are two kings presented. Well, these those two kings just happen to, to be described in terms that are very similar to Mark Antony and Augustus, two kings who after... Um, after Lepidus was kind of kicked out of the triumvirate who ruled over uh, significant par- portions of Rome and who weren't seen in too positive a light by people in the empire at the time. And then the book of Revelation with its two beasts. Now the, the two beasts just happen to have a resemblance with um, Rome itself as an empire and Augustus. Augustus is actually presented as a false prophet in the book of Revelation. Interestingly enough, so Augustus is so the the beast is portrayed as a dragon with horns. There are other features too, but the dragon with horns. Augustus actually made a point of of seeing himself, uh, or well, for for example, on a coin he portrays Capricorn. Now, so these are the horns where the horns come from because apparently he had. There's a story that his mother had this kind of nocturnal encounter with the god Apollo, and they you know, did the funky business. And so he was actually this, this um, miraculously born child. He was conceived by a god, Apollo. And Apollo was a dragon slayer. He killed the python. And he was also associated with prophecy. So all these ideas, from, again, from Augustus's propaganda, made it into the book of Revelation as this beast who, you know, thrashed Rome and the Roman people as the, with these symbols of Capricorn, Apollo, the dragon, and prophecy. So <clears throat> that's makes me wonder what yeah. was going on in the skies at the time. Yeah, well, there were comets in the skies, <laughs> and so well, that's just a very short o- overview. It's the book, like I said, is only like ninety pages long, and it's very easy to read. It's pretty interesting. There's apparently, like, he's got a second book or a book written after this on similar themes, which I haven't read yet, but I'm going to, where he gets into um, some more dis- some more details on it and a, a discovery, I think, of a of an inscription that actually gives the name of who was probably this leader of these Jewish revolutionaries. So check it out if you're interested in the topic, because there's a lot more detail than I got into here. But I just find it, one thing that he doesn't talk about very much is Julius Caesar. He kind of lumps in Caesar with with Augustus and with the Roman Empire and kind of without saying it just implies that, that they were all the same. But if you actually look at some more of the history surrounding Caesar himself and the way the Roman people saw him, 
I don't know if that totally fits in with the way Noel presents it, because Caesar was a popular guy, and when when he died, that was it was kind of like JFK being assassinated. That was like the equivalent of of what had happened at the time. So I'd I'd think that after Caesar's death, that was probably what what led to these original ideas about the that that Virgil wrote about in the fourth eclogue about the need for a redeemer, someone who would come and basically continue the work that Caesar was trying to do. Instead we got Augustus who went back to prescriptions, killing and a new kind of um elite oligarchy that just replaced the old one eventually. So well, there's some interesting stuff there. So <clears throat> I'm waiting with bated breath for all these messiahs to return. Yeah, yeah. When are these guys going to show up and get to get to work? These repeating prophecies. So we're we going to see something similar to this in the in the near future. Whew. Similar, like uh, some new messiahs coming. Yeah, or yeah, some new redeemer, and he's going to be killed, and three days later Ooh. resurrected, and all this stuff. Well, you know, I think that maybe not not in those terms necessarily, but there, I think there will be. Well, I mean, I, I compared Caesar being killed to JFK. I think a lot of people would feel the same way if someone like Vladimir Putin died. Now, and when something like that happens, I don't know if if it would be this, the exact same situation. Like, uh, if there'd be like some religious <laughs> Uh, Putin cult that would that would spring up or not, but uh, but the dynamic is the same. I think you know people are looking for people are looking for someone in a position of power who can make things right. And I think that's kind of the the kernel of these messiah myths is that people are looking for someone to stand up for them in a position of power, and they aren't getting that, and they haven't got that, and that's what that's what leads to just this this fervent desire for something like that. Maybe some <clears throat> increased sky activity might uh, might be oh, a catalyst yeah. for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the gods will come back in the skies. <laughs> <laughs> Disappear for a few days and come back. Well, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about on that. If you've, you know, we're probably going to end it there unless we get any uh, questions in the next few seconds. Callers, feel free to call in. But uh, yeah, is there anything else that you guys wanted to bring up for today? No, I think it's good. Okay, well in that case, we are going to stop it right there, and see you next week. So everyone, take care, read the news, and tune in tomorrow for behind the headlines, and then Monday for the health and wellness show. All right, bye bye. Adios. Goodbye. Happy Valentine's Day.